This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the new podcast, everyone. This is the inaugural episode of Moon Race Wireless. Um, I almost slipped over those words just because I haven't pronounced them out loud that much. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is going to be our patron-exclusive Turn A Gundam podcast, where we give Turn A Gundam the episode-by-episode Giant Robot FM treatment. This episode, though, that you're listening to is uh, released to the public, but future episodes will be patron-exclusive. Now that that business is out of the way, PMC, I'm, of course, with you. It's been a while since we podcasted. Yeah, it has been a a hot minute since we've gotten together and done this, but uh, delighted to be here, delighted to get back into things. We were, I mean, we we kept ourselves busy, even though it wasn't necessarily a podcast, although some of it was podcast-related. True, very true. How excited are you to jump into Turn uh, extremely. I think the, you know, all of the things that I've been told about it in terms of, you know, who is involved and what sort of setting it is, uh, is just extremely intriguing. You know, Tomino, Mead, Yoko Kano, you know, we can go, I'm sure there are more people that I don't appreciate, especially on like the design side of things. Uh, you know, maybe a character design or something. So, um, I'm excited to just jump right in. It's, I'm very, very hyped. Awesome. And of course, we are not alone. If you are on Anime or Gundam Twitter and you think of Turn A and you think of the person we should have contacted to guest on the first episode of Turn A, well, we got him. We got Fees. Fees, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk about Turn A. I'm always happy to talk about Turn A. It's uh, a huge part of my life. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thrilled you're on board for the inaugural episode. Fees, without a doubt, and I think I can safely say this without risk of understatement, I think you are the biggest English-speaking fan of Turn A Gundam on the internet. Like, your love for the show is not only appreciated from spectators like me, but, like, thoroughly documented online. You're an excellent Twitter follow, and you maintain a website, which we'll talk about a little later. But first, I want to ask you, when did you first discover and fall in love with Tomino's Return to Gundam? I would say it was, you know, in the in the late 2000s. Um, you know, my origins with Gundam um, are nothing unique for, you know, my fellow peers. I started off with Gundam Wing on Toonami, you know, back in the early 2000s. Uh, fell in love with the show, watched it like 3,000 times. <laughs> and uh, and then I watched G Gundam, you know, which, which aired soon after. Um, and then Gundam Seed a couple of years after that. Um, and I would say those three shows kind of made me a Gundam fan. And, um, you know, I started watching a little bit more mecha anime and just anime in general. But I would say it, it wasn't until 2007 when Tengen Toppa, Gurren Lagann started airing that I was, um, I started getting into like anime communities and, um, you know, going online, researching about anime, joining, you know, various forums, lurking on you know, 4chan and whatnot. And um, I discovered a video game series called Super Robot Wars around that time as well. And it was Super Robot Wars Alpha 3 that I started playing. That was my first SRW game. And I knew 
you know, maybe like three or four series in that entire game. So, it, you know, it exposed me to a lot of uh, giant robot anime that I didn't know about. And I searched out basically all those shows, you know, you know, there's, there's so many different anime in that, in that uh, game. And that's kind of how I really got started as a mecha fan, I would say, in the, in the late 2000s. And in a lot of anime communities, the general sentiment was that um, if you want to watch Turn A, you have to watch like all the previous shows, right? And of course, there's a lot of validity to that that kind of mindset. But I do think in the kind of the modern day, that's not like the best way to sell a product <laughs> to you know to an average person. Um, but you know, that's basically what I did. You know, I watched like the entire Gundam meta series leading up to Turn A, uh, and I watched Turn A in 2008 after the first season of Gundam the Below finished airing. And I kind of just fell in love with the show at that point. I don't want to get into all the weeds and details on, on this podcast, but the big reason I really like Turn A in particular is because um, I actually have a very deep attachment to the moon uh, on a personal level uh, since my childhood. Um, I'm really into astronomy. I have two telescopes, lots of you know accessories. I'm a member of my local county's astronomy club. Uh, I go to outreach events. So that, you know, the moon is a, a huge uh, uh, symbolic and, and, and metaphorical symbol in turn A. Um, so, you know, that's, I would say that's kind of like the, the main driving force to why I like the show so much. But, you know, of course, I really like the audiovisual aesthetic. Loran is kind of like my soul character, I guess you could say, my kindred spirit, self-insert role model, whatever you want to call it. And... um I really, really like Diana, the uh, the heroine of the show. She's kind of like my favorite character of my favorite character archetype, if that makes sense. And I kind of, I, I really like the um, the really like show not tell, subtle and sweet romance that Lauren and Diana have as well. That's very, it's very Tomino esque because he's he doesn't like to do romance in a very like direct in your face way most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah that's kind of that's that's in a nutshell that's that's kind of my origins and why i like Turnay so much one of the things i like about you a lot fees online is how positive you are about gundam and anime and mecha because there are a lot of hardcore cynical gundam fans out there but i feel like you bring a very optimistic spirit to your love of the franchise mm-hmm. with that said do you have any like hot gundam takes like I don't know, maybe Dark Horse candidates for the secret best Gundam show outside of Turn A. Like, are you like a Closet Igloo fan or something? Uh, no, I wouldn't say I'm a Closet Igloo fan, but I mean, I guess it would be considered a hot take. Um, but I I do really like G-Reco. Um, okay. It is it's actually my second favorite anime. Um, and a lot of it is because it's kind of like Turn A Gundam's sister show you know, soul show, you know, partner show in a lot of ways. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the fan base doesn't really like the show. I would say a lot of the Tomino fan base love the show, but Gundam fans as a whole, especially in the West, it's kind of a, um, you know, contentious anime. So I guess that would be my hot take. Awesome, awesome. Now I have future questions. We hope to have you on future episodes of Moon Race Wireless as well. So I'm going to save like more mm-hmm. general mecha questions for later episodes. But I do want to talk about 
You're at the excellent website you run, and also your awesome Turn A Gundam collection. Because you've extens- extensively documented the production of Turn A online. You post a lot of pics on Twitter of you know the collection you've amassed. Like, Tell us about this project, because the website is such an invaluable resource. Moon's Cocoon? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it, it, it really started with, um, you know, back in the day when I was uh, really into Gundam fandom, um, uh, you know, back in the 2000s, Gundam wasn't really as mainstream as it is uh, these days in the, in the West. So there was a lot of information slash misinformation slash whatever you want to call it kind of being spread around different, um, you know, different forums and different communities, a lot of unsubstantiated rumors. Um, that would get circulated back in the day in, in like smaller communities and just kind of spread around different websites. And a lot of those rumors still exist to this day because of because of that. Um, and, you know, the way the way it works, um, and even to this day, is you know somebody says something, another person repeats it. It gets shared around to you know hundreds of people, thousands of people, and then that's what people come to believe. Um, and I think. A, a really good example of this is, um, you know, director Tomino himself, um, you know, uh, the kind of uh, opinion that a lot of people have of him is based off of really out of context quotes from the 1980s and that kind of disregard the entire rest of his life and career that I've always never really jived with. And um, there was actually a um, a video that a a person on Twitter put out uh, uh, it's a clip from a G Reco uh, radio show um, with uh, with subtitles, right? Like a translated clip of Tomino talking about uh, script writing and how he believes that female characters are tend to be better told through a a, a female script writer. And a lot of people responded to that clip with uh, with shock and surprise, basically on Twitter, which I thought was kind of indicative of of this whole phenomenon. You know, if you followed Tomino's career past 1984 or or whatever have you, (laughs) uh, you would know that he's, you know, he's kind of evolved his his outlook and mindset on on a lot of things. And that's expressed in his later works, you know, especially a show like G-Reco, which is, you know, his most recent work. And, uh, you know, one of my uh, goals with my website is to kind of provide a um, uh, a resource, a consolidated resource that people can reference and 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 use to you know improve discourse online, to to improve the way people talk about shows, the way the way people view the uh, you know Tomino and and whoever everyone else involved in the show, because there's not a lot of uh, resources out there like that. Um, even for UC Gundam, which there there are lots of wonderful folk on Twitter and elsewhere doing a lot of great research on, you know, um, Mobile Suit Gundam, Zeta Gundam, Double Zeta, Shars Counterattack, etc. But it's all really scattered out there. It's not like a consolidated resource. And, you know, I understand that's that's difficult. It's a lot of work and, there's, you know, it can be hard. And there's a lot, a lot of people uh, working on it. But um, I think for a large franchise like Gundam, it, it really goes a long way. And um, I've had a lot of people uh, message me, you know, privately in DMs or on my blog or, or on Discord and elsewhere, really thanking me for kind of the work I've done. And it, whenever I get that kind of positive reinforcement, it, uh, you know, really makes me feel like I'm, what I'm doing is uh, is good. 
Oh, hell yeah. I used your website extensively. I think I first encountered Moon's Cocoon when I was doing research for our giant robo history episode on the old podcast because I wanted Mm -hmm. to see what Imagawa was up to in his early days when he was briefly working on Zeta and, of course, what he was doing with G Gundam, which you mentioned, uh, you know, came up a bit in the production history of Turn A, or at least what Tomino was up to in the early 90s. So thank you personally, Fees. You're doing the hard labor out there. No, I, pre- I appreciate the, the the kind words, and you know, it was never really my intention to to really become like a big Gundam personality on the internet or anything like that. But um, you know, it really what what it was was um, I just really liked Turner Gundam, and I wanted to research and learn more about the show. And the more I learned and researched, the more I, I realized that people just there's people just don't know a lot about a lot of Gundam shows. So um, I, I wanted to share what I learned with with everyone else, and um, well, that's kind of how I that's how kind of how I got started. And now I'm in a very lucky position. Now um, and I'm, I'm blessed, I guess you could say, with a lot of clout. Um, and I, I'm I'm actually acquainted with a number of staff members on the show on on Twitter, and you know I regularly DM them, and a lot of the information I get I verify through them. Um, awesome and. It's uh, it, it it's it's very reinforcing, I guess, to see some of these people, you know, retweet my content and you know respond to some of the stuff I say. Um, and I know I do know that staff members who worked on the show they're very happy to know that they're that the show has a lot of foreign fans. So I just want I just want to get that out there. Do you have Tomino's cell phone number? <laughs> no. I doubt he has a cell phone. No, you know he probably does. No, yeah, I was actually really, really sad. I went to Anime NYC in 2019 when Tomino uh, was a guest of honor, but I didn't win like the raffle ticket to to get an autograph by him, mm. and that really bummed me out. <laughs> yeah, it's downright criminal that PMC and I were not there. I wish I could get Tomino in a room, Austin Walker moderating, and a whole bunch of enthusiastic fans and some and some weirdo fans who ask weirdo questions to Tomino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah. The, that that event was 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 great in many ways, of course. But some of the questions that people uh, people asked him were uh, were pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, at conventions like that, it's your pick of the litter when it comes to audience members, right? When it comes to these works that are that, where the people who worked on them are sort of still in living memory, you know, it, it you can feel like a bit of an imposter. To be like, who am I as a fan to reach out and talk to these people about what they worked on? Um, but, you know, as long as you're doing it you know, in an appropriate and professional manner, you can be surprised at what you can unearth as a result. As Just as an example, you know, a lot of times in, in video game speedrunning, a lot of people who worked on games 20 years ago are now really happy to, like, see those games being played, to talk about those games uh, and so I think here, you know, even with the, you know, the you know, language barrier, other things going on, you know, making that just, you know, appropriate effort to be involved. Uh, Giant Robot FM helped credit someone who worked on Armored Core Project Phantasma who was not appropriately credited. And that tweet of that person saying, like, thank you for introducing me as someone who worked on this still shows up like on our in our mentions all the time, um, just as like people noticing it. So um you know, obviously, be be nice, be normal, but also, you know, it is okay to, to shoot a message out there sometimes when you're talking to someone who worked on something. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and that that's that's exactly what happened. Um, there's a 
anonymous staff member, I guess you could say, a pseudonymous staff member on Twitter. Um, and at first I thought they were just, you know, like a, a, Tomino, a Tomino fan, you know, a Japanese Tomino fan. And then, you know, I would, I would see them talking with, um, like other creators on the show, you know, like, uh, Akiman and Kenichi Yoshida and some other, um, you know, bigger names attached to the show. And then, um, and the way they would talk was from like a position of, they know what they're actually talking about. Right. So eventually, and after several years, I just, just DM them one day and that's kind of how we got started. So you're absolutely right. And usually the people are thrilled to hear from you. Like, I remember when I DM'd Robert Woodhead, who translated the Super Nintendo mecha side-scroller Zardion, and he, I was like, hey, do you have any information about this? He's like, I have no memory of working on this game, but I appreciate you reaching out. <laughs> so that was, that was always fun. And misinformation is rampant on Twitter, and sometimes we, you know, inadvertently help facilitate that just because we're... You know, we're trying to document the, the production history of these shows as best we can, but sometimes misinformation slips in there. Like, did Yasuhiko work on Frost to the Snowman or not? Like, who can say? Probably not. But, you know, it's good that people are ve- trying to verify and vet that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, yeah, you know, one of, the, one of the big old rumors about Turn A has always been that, um, you know, Lauren was originally intended to be a girl. And you see this kind of People say it over and over again over the years. Uh, you'll always find somebody kind of, you know, spewing it out there. And it's not only tr- uh, untrue, it's kind of, it's almost like disrespectful to the original intent of the show that Tomino had in regards to creating a character look like Laurent to kind of just like disregard all that and just say, oh, he was just, he was just supposed to be a girl because, because it quote unquote makes sense is, I really, I really, dis- I really hate that rumor. <laughs> Agreed. Now, before we jump into the episode discussion proper, usually we do an exhaustive history episode or history episodes before we start a new show. With Moon Race Wireless, we are saving that for the end, mainly for practical reasons. Just because I have, got, I'm juggling multiple history episodes. Another history episode would destroy me. And we wanted to jump on turn A as quickly as possible. But it's also fun to jump into a show without all of that knowledge. I have some working knowledge of the production history of turn A Gundam. But PMC and I have zero knowledge of the show post-episode one. So that's going to be very exciting. Because usually we know what's coming down the pipe uh, narrative-wise. We are completely uh, ignorant as to what follows. So that should, we should be in for some fun surprises. PMC, do not look at a map of turn A Gundam. Yeah, no, don't worry. I, I I will not. I promise I will not. I'm actually really, as, as someone who has, um, you know, usually not worried about this kind of thing, like I'm definitely like keeping, I usually do not keep a cast list for, uh, for a show, but like I'm already being like, I can't look up these people because I know the moment I do, it's going to be like, yes, and they won the war in episode 40. I'm like, no, I can't, I can't do this. Now, PMC, before you jump in, you have one fun turn A factoid that you have to drop uh, yeah, here. I guess this is a good point to drop. So, uh, in in kind of a similar vein to Fiza's story, the only time I have encountered turn A characters in Gundam media is when I was playing Dynasty Warriors Gundam, and I only did one campaign of it. I did the original story mode for Hero Yui because, of course, I did because you know why not. And uh, in in that you do encounter Lauren, and um, I think there's another like support character who's helping Lauren. I, I can't remember at this point, 
but it was the only time I had seen, uh, you know, Lauren on screen, uh, you know, so to say. Um, and of course, every character in that does have English dubs. A lot of the English dubs from that game are reprised by, you know, the ocean dub for first Gundam, et cetera, et cetera. But you have a bunch of characters that never had an English dub that get an English dub, uh, like Lauren, like, uh, Judao has an English dub, a really deep voice, which I did not expect, which was upsetting at the time. <laughs> but so that's my, that's my one bit of turn a exposure. You remember who voices him? Uh, I do not. I mean, I, that I can probably look up without fear. I remember you streaming that game. Yeah, it was it was a fun romp. I mean, you know, Dynasty Warrior stuff. You can always just sort of go through and uh, and live your live your best life. Uh, okay, so uh, apparently it was. I do not recognize the name of this actress. It was Annika Odegaard, huh. who uh, is also uh, like. 99 Kilika? Interesting. Short huh. short uh, resume, but interesting. Were there a lot of turn A characters in uh, the Dynasty Warriors Gundam game, or is just Loran? I want to say it was just Loran. I, again, this might be a situation where I can't recognize everyone. I'm just flipping through real quick just to see if, uh, if any of them jump out at me. Yeah, I'm not recognizing anyone else who is immediately to my eyes. Okay, a uh, a turn A character. I think it might might have just been Lauren. Fees, did you know about this? I did. Yeah, I have played one of the Dynasty Warriors games, and I do remember turn A characters being uh, being dubbed. But mm. that's that's all I remember. I don't, I don't remember what they sound like. PMC usually provides us with the the dankest, darkest video game trivia there is. Yeah, I have a bad tendency to turn things towards that, uh, so my apologies in advance. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's kick it off with episode one, Howl at the Moon. A trio of space travelers, whom we later learn are denizens of the moon, referred to as the moon race, prepare to descend to Earth in a landing craft. Packed into a tight space, they adjust their suits for re-entry. To pass the time and presumably calm their nerves, they sing a variation of Mary Had a Little Lamb and London Bridge is Falling Down. Before they can finish, their craft is jettisoned from an orbiting ship. It breaks through the atmosphere. Before it hits the ground, it transforms into a mech, the legs of which absorb the impact of the drop. So I thought the, the songs here at the beginning are an interesting choice. Like, I've been, I've, I've been watching this episode of the course of the last two weeks. I've been trying to parse the inclusion of these two songs for creative intent. And I've basically come to two potential conclusions, knowing Tomino as I do and knowing Gundam as I do. Like, from the beginning, from 0079 in 1979, Gundam has had a very multinational bent. If you think about the Bridge of the White Base, for example, it's helmed by people of all different cultural backgrounds and ethnic identities. You got Amro. Charitably, I'll say he's North American. Depending on which version of Gundam you're reading or watching, he's either from Mexico, the United States, or Canada. So take your pick there. Mirai's clearly Japanese. Like Ryu's coded as Hispanics or Latinx. Bright's British question mark. But you get the, the where I'm going with this. And there's also the intermixing between Earth and space, of course. And th- I think the same could be true here. Like, texturally, we have three moon people. They're leaving the moon. They're leaving their home to integrate into Earth society. We don't know the reasons at the beginning, but we know they're going down to Earth to, for some reason. 
you know, and they're singing these American and English nursery rhymes. They have altered lyrics to reflect their lunar origins. It feels like very much like a melting pot right at the beginning. Yeah, I did. I was going to say that that last part really sticks out to me, right? Because I, I, you know, nursery rhymes are a part of oral tradition, and to have them with altered lyrics suggests historical divergence, right? No, yeah, you you bring up a, a very good point about or, oral tradition. Um, so. Mary had a little lamp and London Bridge is falling down. Um, I, uh, I don't know if there's any uh, significance between uh, about those two uh, nursery rhymes in particular, but uh, one of Tomino's kind of mentalities with the show was that uh, old stories and old folk tales can be rewritten for new audience, audiences mm. and adapted into like future settings. Um, and um, one of the uh, so Turne has two major influences. I'm going to leave one of them out because if you look it up, it'll give you a big spoiler. Um, and the second one is uh, The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, uh, Princess Kaguya, if you are familiar with that. Um, Studio Ghibli did a really good adaptation of the original story. Um, and Kaguya Hime is um, basically the largest influence on Turne Gundam's uh, plot. Uh, in particular, in how it handles, uh, you know, Diana, the, the the heroine of the show. Um, so, you know, he wanted to use turn A as kind of like a vehicle to show that you can uh, you can tell and retell older tales to to newer, younger audiences in a more like you know modern setting. And I think that's basically what he's doing right from the get go with the with turn A's first episode. Yeah, I like that a lot because. Basically, I, I, it's fun to think of Gundam as an oral tradition because when you're performing storytelling, telling people stories, you're mixing, you know, you're doing all on the fly. Even if you have the story memorized, it changes each time with the telling and, you know, considering the audience too. And you might be mixing and matching motifs and imagery. And that's essentially what Turnay is doing. It's taking the very abstract symbols, motifs, themes of Gundam and playing with them in new ways which which makes it such a fun work. I I have been mm-hmm. called a Tomino skeptic before even though I'm a fan of the man's work, but I think I find myself most most comfortable in like late Tomino, post Char's counterattack Tomino. I'm very interested to check out the more esoteric works like, you know what's coming, Brain Powered, shoutouts to Russell, shout outs to uh, Russell. among other works too. Uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, there's, there's definitely a different, a different vibe with his, his, you know, his late career, uh, works, um, such as brain power. I think brain power is, is amazing, especially in context of turning on them. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the Daitarn three to mobile suit Gundam in a sense, like they aired right after one another and share a lot of staff members as, as well. An interesting thing about this scene is that, uh, Romy Park, uh, Laurent's voice actress, she kind of ad-libbed the entire thing. It was all done in one take. It wasn't like read, re, you know, it was all done in one take. She didn't think she did a good job, but Tomino was kind of like satisfied with, with it on the very first go. And uh, part of it is because one of Tomino's philosophies in the studio was that voice actors and actresses are extensions of their characters. So he wanted them to feel comfortable speaking in their kind of like normal speaking voices versus straining themselves to to get into character, so to speak, every single time they're, you know, they're voicing. Very cool. Also, considering the choice of uh, nursery rhymes, I mean, you could pull from a variety of different time periods and cultures. 
I thought the choice to choose an American and English nursery rhyme from like the 17-1800s was an interesting choice because with Turn A, you, you have the steampunk aesthetic. Um, like the technological level doesn't track perfectly, but Earth society, at least from the first episode, feels very Victorian, really specifically very pre-World War I 20th century, so like the early 1900s. And, and both uh, Mary Had the Little Lamb and London Bridge were very popular in the 18th century, so I think that kind of helps help set the tone, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. That That's probably correct, actually. Um, the Victorian aesthetic is 100% intentional. Um, initially, Turn A was actually going to have a more modern setting, late 1900s, early 2000s type of setting. Um, and a lot of the uh, early conceptual character designs reflect that. You know, the really uh, initial designs for Lauren, for instance, show him just wearing, you know, jeans and a normal looking shirt and whatnot. But it was in kind of like the late, mid to late 90s when Tomino began to frequent uh, Takarazuka stage productions with uh, with some of his family and family friends that uh, things started to change. You know, his the Tomino family is no stranger to like dance and theater. His eldest daughter is at the time at least uh, worked for a theater troupe and his younger daughter um, was a dancer. In fact, his younger daughter collaborated with Tomino on G Reco to do all the, the dance eye catches. Um, so dance and theater, uh, kind of like stage productions, that kind of thing has always been a big part of like the Tomino household. And when he started uh, frequenting a lot of these stage productions, he was um, he was basically like aroused by the aesthetic, I guess you could say, especially like the the costumes and um, that the women wear. Because the Takarazuka is an all female uh, theater troupe, and he was he was basically struck by it, and he really enjoyed the kind of like widespread appeal that they have, and. Um, he wanted to make Churn A Gundam kind of like that, um, a robot anime, not just for like anime fans, but something an ordinary person can you know enjoy. Um, and uh, the Takarazuka, they often do productions on you know various different stories, folk tales, etc. And a lot of the times they're you know uh, older tales from the you know early 1900s and whatnot. And that's kind of where the kind of design aesthetic of Churn A kind of originates from. Um, in fact, um, the character designer, Akira Yasuda Akiman, he, he referenced the 1996 production of the German language musical called Elizabeth that the Takarazuka uh, did a production on and to create his own design aesthetic, basically. And uh, he also referenced Victorian art, Edwardian art uh, for inspiration. And... Um, so that's why, you know, in Turnay, you see a lot of fashionable dresses, you see a lot of outfits, you see a lot of dancing, you see a lot of kind of uh, scenes framed from like a, a sense of theater or drama. And that's something that Tomino has kind of always done, even in his older shows, but it's a lot more prevalent than Turnay, I would say. I love the aesthetic of Turnay so much. And I'll, I'll wax rhapsodic about that momentarily. Actually, I could talk about it right now because we've got to talk about the, the flat because it fucking rules. Whenever we get around to our history episode, I'll probably dedicate like an hour-long segment just to Sid Mead. But sufficient to say, I love his designs. I'll have a lot to say about the turn A once we get there. But 
like even 25 years later um, from the debut of uh, Turn A Gundam in 1999, like I feel like his designs are still wholly original. Like there's nothing like them. It, they feel so effortless, but permanent. Like they were, I don't know, sketched in stone millennium ago and were discovered recently. There's like almost a hieroglyphic quality to them. Like if a meteor fell in your backyard, like a Spielberg film, and you went out into the backyard and glowing on the meteor were these symbols of these very abstract and cool looking mechs. Like obviously the moon race's tech is meant to contrast with that of Earth, but there's something so out there about his designs that suggests that this technology is either from the distant past or far future. It's like that Star Wars effect, which I feel is both very universal and paradoxical, which I feel are two qualities that really do epitomize Tomino's work as an artist. Yeah, I think it's striking uh, the it, right from the beginning the flat is becomes especially striking in contrast to all of the you know the Victorian turn of the 20th century industrialization like cuz all of those all the things that we see are like very typical of machinery of the era, early automobiles, airships, fighter, you know the the biplanes, etc. and to see the flat in comparison to that and and it's especially fitting right just because of how influential Mead's work is as a designer and things like blade runner the opposite of turn a gundam uh or at least you know what we see in much of this episode uh it's just really striking and it it really does feel like it's coming from uh, another world it's and it's like really the the clashing of the two that that elevates them both yeah yeah no absolutely i think i think you can easily dedicate an entire podcast talking about Sid Mead and his design work with the uh, intern A Gundam. But yeah, the, the kind of clash in technologies, I think, is a is a huge aspect of it, both aesthetically and thematically. And you kind that. of you kind of see it also in some of Tomino's older works um, in, uh, in Aura Battler Dunbine, for instance. There's a huge class in te- of technologies in that show as well, which I really liked. Um, so to kind of see that again um, in turn A is, uh, is pretty cool. I got to post more Sid Mead designs on Mecha Day, like outside of turn A designs. I think the only time Sid Mead has made an appearance on Mecha Day outside of turn A Gundam is he did some conceptual work on Alien, the lift, you know, uh, at the end of the film, throw the alien out of the spaceship. I think that's the last time he featured on uh, t- that t- my Twitter page. Well, he also did some conceptual designs for Sunrise. Uh, uh, he did a poster of the Zeta Gundam mm. back in the eighties, and this was this was all part of the kind of canned uh, Gundam live action film project that Tom Asnable actually actually did a lot of good research on. Oh yeah, his article rules. Yep. You know, speaking of paradoxical, I feel like the flat feels like it could be purposed for general labor or combat like even though it's being used as transport here i feel like there's something a little sinister about its design again i don't know what's coming in the future but it, it kind of feels a bit like the probe droid on hoth and empire there's something a little menacing about it but yeah. it also seems like it could be used to lift stuff i i, I forgot to, to mention this but it definitely it's something that uh Soshi says later on in regards to the thing burying its or you know concealing itself uh you know it's like a pretty common both, um, I guess, like mechanically and thematically, a relevant question to ask in Mecca, which is to say, does does the 
the mecha have some sentience of it of its own and you know a lot of times super robot it's a very thematic character driven thing and uh you know in real robot you can be questions of ai you know is it ai assisted and so here you know i definitely find myself wondering because the the way the scene unfolds it, it very much presents uh lauren keith and frandall as passengers uh, they're not none of them seem to be piloting it as far as i can tell i mean not not that we can like identify readily and so it's very much a question of like well is is there ai here too that, that's an interesting observation um sentience in in tomino shows is definitely a thing in his his later works um usually it's very subtle but it's definitely it's definitely like a, a thing especially in, in something like brain powered. See, Feast is just sitting off screen with all the answers laughing to himself <laughs> as we, as we predict what could happen. I mean, but like, even when things aren't necessarily answered, you know, like I bring up first Gundam in early first Gundam, it's an open question whether the Gundam is successful because of the Gundam or because of Amaro, you know, and, and, and it's attributed to the learning computer, but that's, you know, kind of gets dropped out once uh, the whole new type discussion comes up. It's all thanks to the pit crew, a.k.a. Job John and his friends. (laughs) Also, as a general rule when it comes to mech design, mechs with heels, please. I feel like it's such a distinctive touch. We don't see it enough. And when we do see it, it's more stereotypically deployed to represent a mech with a female pilot. I absolutely love my mechs with heels. It reminds me of Xion's Egg from the first Xenosaga. I wrote I wrote the numerical title down, the VX-1000. Or is that 10,000? I can't see. I'm getting old. Fees, you, I know I followed you on Twitter for a while. You are a big Xenogears fan. Does that love extend to Xenosaga? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love, I love, I'm a, I am shamelessly a, a, a Zeno boomer. <laughs> I like Zeno Gears and Zeno Saga more than the Xenoblade games. Um, you know, that's I do, I do like the Xenoblade games, <laughs> but still, um, no, that's a, that's a that's a good observation. And, you know, uh, something that I've always kind of felt, and I brought it, I brought it up on Twitter recently as well, is that Chaos from Zeno Saga. He kind of looks mm. very similar to to Lauren. Yeah, hundred um, <laughs> percent. So I, I I do wonder if that was if the if you know if, if Tetsuya Takahashi and his team you know were were influenced in any way shape or form because the Zeno games do take a lot from um, mecha anime in general. I was gonna say PMC if they had the same voice actor the same English voice actor the Dynasty Warriors Gundam game and Zeno Saga the Chaos Voice I would send you right off to Twitter to fire that off right yeah, now. Yeah, that would that would be emergency. You know, can you believe these are the same? Uh, you know, provided you play Dynasty Warriors Gundam. <laughs> Derek Stephen Prince, by the way, is the voice of Chaos in episode one of Xenosaga. Mm. So the next morning, the three travelers, Laurent, Keith, and Fran, what an assortment of names, wearing Earthian clothing, bid each other farewell before walking off in separate directions. So since I've only seen the first episode of Turn A Gundam, and I guess the preview of episode two, I spent most of the 22 minutes wondering like, why they're here. Do they come? I have my theories, of course, but let's let's exist in the space for a second. Like, do they come in peace? Is this an anthropological fact-finding mission? Probably they're gathering intel to prepare for a military invasion. I'm going to mention Urs- Ursula Gwyn a bit later, but for fun, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, let's say their intentions are pure, and maybe they are pure, but they're being ma- manipulated by institutional forces, which is another Tomino thing, of course. But let's say 
everything is chill right now. And maybe to think a bit about uh, Le Guin's Hainish cycle, in particular I'm thinking of the novel Left Hand of Darkness. In this science fiction universe, there is an intergalactic institution called the Ecumen. If you need like a proxy, think of it as a less militarized federation from Star Trek. And their goal is simple. It's to open up and facilitate communication and cultural exchange between alien species. And before they make contact with a new race, they send investigators to covertly observe that society. Like, um, I wonder if that's what's going on here. Like, for the record, I think it's military reasons. And based on Laurent's invocation at the end of the episode, it might seem like they're the first wave of a colonization effort. But I don't know. I'm, I'm curious where this could go from here. Yeah, just to support that, it is it is worthwhile to point out that Keith is Keith says, "Hey, maybe the moons is attacking," and they're just saying it's Gallia. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he sort of openly wonders about military invasion by by the by the 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 friends back home. So that does raise an awful lot of questions. If that is the question that you ask your friend who works at the news news shop. Also, it's good to point out, like in Le Guin, they only send in like Left Hand of Darkness when they're sending investigators. It's only a few here, though. They send it's not just the three of them. Five other flats departed for Earth. I wonder if we'll meet who was on those flats uh, later on the show. Of course, Fees is out there with all the answers, clutching them like a dragon, hoarding its treasure. Good, good theories. That, that's all. That's all I can really say. <laughs> that's what people say on Twitter because we recently watched The Big O and. We, PMC's seen season two, I have not, but we're just wildly grasping at straws when it comes to the future of that show. Laurent, traversing over grassland, encounters a coyote. Terrified, he clumsily tries to defend himself. Fortunately, an aristocratic-looking man, called Master Gwyn by his female companions, from the vantage point of his airship, fires a few shots from his rifle, scaring it off. Uh, I was hooting and hollering when I saw some airships, like, Miyazaki, eat your heart out. Turn a Gundam is such a fucking vibe. I absolutely love it. I want to bottle it up and like turn it into clone and spray myself in it. I had an extended discussion with my wife during this part about whether uh, airships were a thing. And I said, well, blimps are a thing, which are airships. I don't think they were shaped like this, though. So, but I could be wrong. I'd love to see someone knows like a funny like, airship that looks like this. I'd love to be wrong. Not mass-produced. I'm sure there's some weirdo, like, 1910s experimental uh, airships. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure either. <laughs> Laurent comes across a river. He strips and jumps in. Basking in the warm sun, he takes out a toy fish from his knapsack and lets it float on the water until the current picks up, rapidly carrying it downstream. He runs after it but trips and thrashes in the moving water before losing consciousness. Two girls nearby who were bathing, uh, with the aid of some villagers, carry him to safety. So, I'm an English teacher. Bathing scenes, whenever water enters a narrative, it's usually for a very specific symbolic reason, and they immediately stand out to me as important. It's a very common trope, and that's not a criticism. Water is ubiquitous, so its presence in... The fact that it's ubiquitous in literature isn't an issue. By nature, I think water is very restorative. It has the power to cleanse literally and figuratively. Like, maybe this is Laurent shedding his lunar identity before he's about to assimilate into a new culture, which is a nice touch, I think. Fish imagery is also potentially important. You know, just like a fish out of water. <laughs> or there's, uh, you know, plenty of fish in the sea. True. Mm-hmm. 
trot out any num- number of fish cliches or fish fish platitudes you want you could apply it to the scene i also want to say that i really enjoy uh yeah I, I, when you see the you know our lunar visitors descend and, and start trying to you know they put on clothes they're clearly trying to hide and integrate themselves getting into sort of like what are they eager to engage with will tell you a lot about what they don't have on the moon uh, but what also i think is interesting is what they are sort of unprepared for I'm going to bring up First Gundam a lot because I think it's just sort of interesting to compare to. Uh, you know, in First Gundam, you had the space noid Earth, you know, Earth resident divide, and there's an extended sequence about how lightning surprises them all very much when they're mm. you know when they're going through a lightning storm. And here, it's something that is uh, you know much more hidden, but just as devastating, which is a powerful river current that you know that takes Loran in. Uh, I, don't know, I, I like that. I like, there's you could probably, just as Stephen was saying, go on at length about the you know I- imagery and thematic things that you can invoke by talking about the current, you know, the the power of water more so even than just you know the the restorative power or cleansing powers of water. I feel like you're now channeling Rob Zachney from AMCA when he's talking about water in Andor, which is an excellent observation. Because it could also be a very destructive force, too. Um, I, I, w- I would actually, I would encourage you two to continue with the uh, first Gundam kind of parallels, because mm-hmm. that that was definitely a thing, a, a mindset that Tomino had when he was making this show. Um, he faced a lot of kind of similar struggles and, and backlash from Sunrise and sponsors when he was making uh, Turn A Gundam that he did back when he was making First Gundam. So there's a, there's definitely a lot of validity to kind of comparing the two in some similar in some aspects. So I would definitely encourage kind of thinking, uh, you know, looking at it from that angle. Keel and Smooch. Oh. No, I was just gonna say it's oh. neat. Good. Like I'm 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 excited to continue doing so. <laughs> Keel and Sochi, two sisters of the affluent and aristocratic Heim family, leave Laurent with Jessica, one of their retainers on the family estate. Je- Jessica's stern but caring. She provides him with food. Quote, if you weren't half drowned, she says, the Heim family wouldn't normally let a foreign stray like you through the door. End quote. Okay, so... I have a note here. I'm going to read the note, but I also had I, I stupidly Googled "turn a gun to map," uh, which answered, which inadvertently answered some of these questions. But the first time I was watching this episode, I took some notes and I was like, "All right, where are they located?" Because, and this isn't a criticism, but Tomino usually plays fast and loose with these kinds of details. You know, does Garma die in New York or Seattle? Um, where in Central Asia is the white base? Now, for some people, this isn't an issue. But if you're Yasuhiko, this is an issue, and you want to correct it immediately, which he did several decades later. Like, I'm, Laurent's walking to his destination. The grasslands that he's walking through immediately stood out to me as very Eurasian steppe. But then you get to the high estate, and the, the houses look very Swiss, at least the houses of their retainers. But also, because I looked it up, coyotes are endemic to North America, not Africa or Asia. So I feel like... If you view these as contradictions, these sorts of contradictions give Turne a very timeless and universal quality. And I think this is true of a lot of Tomino's later work. It's not concerned with about specific nationalities or geographic locations. Tomino and his works are usually very concerned about 
humanity writ large, like the hum- human beings with capital H, and the Earth with the capital E. Yeah, no, absolutely agreed. Um, you know, while there is a, a map associated with, with turning Gundam setting, I don't think it's very, it's necessarily too important or significant, to be honest. But if you do take a look at the map or know anything about Turn A, one of my observations would be like, man, Tomino did some research, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, that's 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 true. <laughs> yeah, when I Googled, it's like, fuck, why did I do this? But I didn't really fall too flat on my face, and they still think my observations are valid. Because I'll tell you what, where we're located, there's no houses looking like that here. Later that day, Laurent has a conversation with Sochi, who has clearly taken an interest in him. He tells her he doesn't need charity. He'll work to pay his way. He decides to seek employment and lodgings in the Heim mind. While setting off, he notices Kiel, whom he thinks resembles someone named Queen uh, Diana. She returns his fish and chastises him for interrupting her bath, which was a purification ritual in preparation for the coming-of-age ceremony. He apologizes profusely. Kiel tells the contrite Loran that her father got him a job in the mines per her request. All right, I don't want to give, like, the most basic commentary here. I don't want to be reductive. I know a lot of people have made this comparison before, but I feel like I got to make it in the first episode. This feels very Miyazaki-esque, to use very generalized terms. Like, the late 18th, early 19th century attire and architecture is an amalgam of various Western influences, which Fees mentioned earlier, which is textbook Ghibli. The high mine reminds me a lot of Patsu's Welsh-inspired hometown in Castle in the Sky, and the Swiss vibes I referenced earlier feel right out of Heidi, Girl of the Alps, and considering, and Fees, you might be able to add a bit more to this, considering that Tomino was a storyboarder and writer on Heidi, I think the connection is appropriate. Yeah, so this is one of those things where um, the kind of, um, the, the old discourse would tell you, oh, this is very Miyazaki-esque. This is the Miyazaki Gundam. And then you would have the backlash from the more kind of like elitist Gundam fans who would say that, that that's that's not true. Tomino is too sophisticated or whatever to be influenced by Miyazaki. Tomino hates Miyazaki, so it's not Miyazaki influence at all. But the the truth is actually the former. This is, this is very intentional. So um, when Tomino was approached by the Sunrise CEO to make a new Gundam for the 20th anniversary. Uh, one of the script writers that Tomino sought after was Hiroyuki Hoshiyama, who is one of the prominent script writers on, on Turn A. And Tomino had worked with him during Daitarn 3 and First Gundam. And the big reason he, he wanted to work with him again was because Hoshiyama, by, by the late 90s, had a lot of experience outside of mecha anime he wasn't you know associated only with mecha anime like a lot of other you know people who work at sunrise are um so you know when they were brainstorming early uh, conceptual ideas together one of the things hoshiyama suggested to tomino and this is this is quote gundam but in a world like heidi so um so that is very intentional um and and that's why you so you know one of the things hoshiyama suggested was to have like a a nice guy protagonist who quote-unquote smells good um yeah i bet laurent does smell good (laughs) uh, walking through like a wheat field while a mobile suit flies on above so that's kind of like the the the, the picture aesthetic of 
of turn A that Hoshiyama and Tomino kind of um, kind of envisioned early on. And, you know, a lot of it does come from Heidi. You know, Heidi is, a, you know, it's a pre-Ghibli anime directed by Takahata. But, you know, it has a very, like, idyllic atmosphere and, you know, picturesque kind of art style and backgrounds um, with a lot of, like, tranquility and, 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 like, a healing effect, essentially. And that is, that is, that is definitely what Tomino was, uh, was trying to do with the aesthetic and the, the general mood of, of turn A, especially, especially early on in the show. And, you know, even though he, you know, oftentimes doesn't publicly admit it, in his um, in his turn A Gundam book, which is called Turn A No Iyashi, it's kind of like a, a collection of of essays, uh, almost like a memoir of his time working on the show. And he does he does mention that you know he had a lot of respect for Takahata and Miyazaki, um, and he viewed them as like the, the leading directors in the anime industry. And he wanted to channel like some of their methods of success um, into. Uh, into, into Turn A Gundam, particularly and how he's, they're able to appeal to like a very large uh, uh, range of audiences, you know, not not just children, children, teenagers, adults, he wants Turn A to be just like that, something that any um, anyone of any age could watch, and um, you know, one of the things that he uh, he commended uh, Ghibli and Miyazaki for doing is that in a lot of their works, um, they will assemble a team with a lot of different stylistic approaches. They weren't, you know, they aren't very insular in how they approach some of their studio productions. And that's what Tomino wanted to do. And, you know, one of the first things he did was to seek out Hoshiyama, as, as I mentioned, who had a lot of experience outside of giant robot anime. And Tomino, you know, he, he kept that mentality going throughout the, throughout the entire process of producing Turning Gundam. And it started with the assembling kind of like the main team, you know, the main, you know, when you think of the main staff members on Turn and Gundam, you think Tomino as the director, Yoko Kano as the composer, Akiman, who came from Capcom, as you know, uh, he's a video game artist, as the character designer, Sid Mead as a mecha designer, who's, you know, not, you know, he's not an anime designer, right? But you have this kind of like, you know, almost like a melting pot of, of people of, of skills from different industries, different backgrounds, different styles, all coming to to work together. Yeah, we were talking about misinformation earlier. I feel like a lot of oh, some fans online don't realize that kind of Tomino's playing up his personality to meet the expectations of his audience. Like, people kind of want him to be that grumpy, eccentric man, old man in interviews. And when he says, like, I'll defeat Hideaki Anno or I'll defeat the new <laughs> Mamoru Hosoda film... He's saying that half in jest, and I think people eat that up, but sometimes they don't realize that he's he's very much playing a public persona. And I think the same could be true of Miyazaki. I'm sure he's very curmudgeonly, but I think he's extra curmudgeonly because that, that's what kind of like the people want. Yeah, no, absolutely. With Tomino, that's definitely true, because if you if you watch a Tomino interview versus if you read a Tomino interview, <laughs> it, it's very different. If you watch a Tomino interview, you see him laughing and smirking and shaking his head and doing, you know, doing all sorts of mannerisms and you know when you when you have that context to the words that he's actually saying it, it you know has like a different connotation a different meaning versus you read an interview from like you know 1985 or whatever and your takeaway might be different than what he was really you know intending at the time 
Plus, if you only read it, read it, you don't get to look at the excellent fashion on display. Tomino's fashion is <laughs> that's that's. I'll, I'll rank him above Miyazaki on that, just because his fashion is very eccentric. It changes with Miyazaki. You just got the apron, which has its own charm. Um, there's something to be said about consistency, but man, Tomino can really wear a weird T-shirt, or no, it's usually a weird button-down. I, I think a lot of that, and this is a little bit of conjecture. I think a lot of that comes from his wife. Um, mm. They say his wife is like incredibly fashionable. Um, she wears, she tends to wear like really long, fancy black dresses. So a lot of the Japanese fan base they call her Black Lala because of that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm that's probably where it comes from. And you know, the, the, just going off of the fact that his his family is very in tune with you know dance and theater and and, and the arts in general. I would love to see a feature film starring Tomino and Miyazaki, like a version of Two Grumpy Old Men. What's the, the, the Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon film? Just change the roles and have them cast Tomino and Miyazaki. I would love it. Anime Twitter would eat that up. I don't know how to transition gracefully from that to Callahan, the family chauffeur. But nonetheless, Callahan, the family chauffeur, drives Sochi and Laurent into town where the celebrations for the upcoming ceremony have begun. Standing on a wooden platform in front of a vaguely Native American-looking statue, Gail presides over the ceremony. She invokes the mountain cycle before being carried by a handful of villagers to the top of a mountain. Scores of penitent follow the procession. Sochi and Laurent are both barred from entry. She's too young, and outsiders aren't allowed. They sneak in to get a peek, but are caught and sent back down the mountain. Kiel announces... The overnight festival of the coming-of-age ceremony will now begin. All adults, please go back down the mountain. I feel like this festival is pure adults are the enemy Tomino. There's definitely some interesting stuff getting invoked here. Uh, I, you know, we, we were talking before about like what sort of time period is this set in, what it's being uh, involved. And a lot of the, the imagery <clears throat> used in this coming-of-age ceremony is very much... Seems to me indigenous culture, of course, being someone who grew up in America, I recognize it as, as Native American stuff. There could be other sort of elements being pulled in there. Uh, but it's definitely interesting to see that um, so deeply integrated into this otherwise, you know, uh, a Swiss or, or sort of other you know, looking uh, culture. You know, as a put we because I, I haven't seen a cross yet. We're, this is a mecca show, and it's the first episode. And I haven't seen a cross, and I don't know. You know, I don't know where I am or what time it is. <laughs> um, so it, I think that's a very interesting one. Other note, I did want to make just in terms of racking up the American influences. We haven't really stopped to talk about the music yet, but one thing I really wanted to highlight, especially during the scenes when Loran is coming to in the Heim Estate, uh, we've talked a little bit already about the extent to which you know, theater and musical is influencing this production. But I definitely think Yoko Kano is intentionally invoking some very Gershwin sounding effects and, and nothing really says early 20th century America quite like the music of Gershwin. I think it's some of the most recognizable early 20th century American music. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I'm curious to see if that follows through, if that's something that a sound that keeps coming back. I haven't looked up title. I haven't looked up track names yet. Because my experience with Gundam is that track names will get you <laughs> if you're if you're trying not to look up spoilers. Track names will get you. 
So I haven't looked up any track names yet, but again, the I think the part where especially Loran is waking up definitely invokes some Gershwin. Yeah, if you look up track titles, it's like track number twenty-one. Loran dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When it comes to the music, I, I it, it is pro- it is po- probably intentional with the the instruments and and the uh, the specific sound that Yoko Kano is going for. Um, you know, she is an incredibly talented composer and by turning Gundam she um she had a pretty good understanding of how Tomino operates as a as a creator because she was she was also the composer for Brain Powered where she kind of struggled a lot to kind of figure out what the heck Tomino means when he says stuff. But you know by turn A she had a much better understanding of him and I think I think it shows because she she's really in tune with the kind of audiovisual aesthetic that Tomino wants with the show. It's funny, like, Tomino's ideology is basically the opposite of adult swim bumpers. Like, adults get out of the pool. Or no, kids get out of the pool, adults in the pool. Tomino's like, adults get out of the pool, kids get in the pool. So, actually, speaking of bumpers, we got our episode break now. So, we got these sweet-ass turn-a eye-catches, and I can't get this out of my mind. They feel very much like the Deep Space Nine bumpers that would play in between commercial breaks. Like, I might ask PMC to try his hand at, like, (laughs) putting the music over one of them, because I do not have this skill as a meme maker, but it is very similar. It's just cool, because Deep Space and Turn A are both dope as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's very similar. The the um, uh, Speaking of another musical influence, I definitely agree. It definitely invokes that same spirit. I also... Over the weekend, watched G Savior, which also has very Star Trek like music. So it was sort of a surprise to me to be jumping from one thing to the other. I, although I guess all of them are twentieth century, are twentieth anniversary projects. So maybe there was just a little bit of Star Trek flitting around the studio or the the Sunrise offices. Yeah, fees. I need your G Savior take. <laughs> have you seen G Savior? I, ha- I have seen G Savior. I've seen it once in like okay, two thousand seven. That, that says everything then. <laughs> Uh, I I don't really have like a like a a modern take on it. It's it's just it's it's been it's been ages since I've seen it, so I don't want to say anything Fair. that I might come to regret. <laughs> don't worry, I don't think anyone's going to be coming at you with pitchforks if you say G Savior sucks. We're about to podcast about it soon. Uh, oh no, I, I have I have a friend, a close friend who's a, who's a, a huge fan of G Savior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're hoping the G Savior sickos come out in droves. All three of I them. I believe it. I believe it. All right, so we're halfway through the episode, and uh, we open. We got a pair of pilots, an aeronautical engineer, and his daughter. They're putting two planes through their paces in the skies above vicinity as Laurent works in the mines below. Laurent's supervisor informs him that Boss Heim wants to see him, so he stops what he's doing, puts on some more presentable clothes, and runs over to the Heim estate. At the family estate, Sochi marvels over a luxury sports car that Master Gwyn commissioned to his own specifications. Meanwhile, her father consults with Gwyn about the increased production of material in anticipation of a potential war. There are rumors that the continent of Gallia, which is separated from them by an ocean, may launch an invasion. Gwyn wants to be ready, but he also harbors grander ideals. He wants to use the potential of war, or war itself, to create an industrialized society. All right, before you get 
into this next bit, I do want to jump in with something to tie these two these two things together. Both referring to Loran working in the mine, repairing an elevator, and then being called in to become the you know the apprentice chauffeur, and then this you know this very world building discussion about the use of industrialization and war. Uh, we talked earlier about in regards to the flat about how the flat presents the moonrace technology as being otherworldly when viewed in light of what is apparently, you know, turn of the 20th century industrial technology. It is very interesting to me as someone with an engineering background that Loran has the skills to work on these things that he has already identified as being good with machines just because, you know, there's a lot of things going on with technology and, you know, there's all sorts of ways to, to interface with now, of course, to be clear, I don't, I don't, this is not a nitpick in saying that like, oh, these things don't make sense. It could be that the idea here is that uh, the things that Loran worked on are so fundamental as to be inescapable, no matter how you arrive at, you know, uh, an engine that pushes things forward. You know, that could be the point, so to speak, that he was either prepared already or prepared specifically, you know, for, for what, he, what he would be doing. Uh, but it's. I'm very, very curious if, in the same way that Loran uh, was not prepared for the river current, if there will be developments in this era of technology that uh, he is unprepared for. Uh, very, very interesting. I always love to look at interfaces here, and certainly I expect to be well fed when comparing, contrasting the moonrace technology versus the Earth technology. Yeah, I'm assuming it started. I'm assuming there was some kind of apocalyptic event on Earth. That happened. I don't know. Either after or before, a bunch of Earth people migrated to the moon, and that's where that dichotomy began. Or unless it's like lunar, in which case the moon people came to Earth. Who knows? Um, but I'm curious to track that further. And I like you bringing up that Amro, uh, not Amro. I'm about to mention Amro. Loran's really good with machines because you know, echoing first Gundam. So is Amro. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. That's that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, even in in Loran's like kind of early. Uh, character details he is uh you know he, he's supposed to be a nice guy quote unquote and he's also an engineer sometimes an engineer in training you know he ends up he, he works in the mines that's all that's all part of his original character conceptualization and um you know one interesting thing about Loran is that he wasn't always intended to be a moon race character early on he was actually going to be an earthling but that was that was changed as the scenario was was you know revised and and, and sophisticated up. But um, yeah, the whole engineer aspect definitely echoing Amro. That's that's a good observation. Do they go officially canonically by Earthlings? So I've got Earthnoids on one end of my brain. I've got Earthians from on my Witch from Mercury side of my brain. Um, I think officially it's Earthers, actually. Oh, that's great. Earthers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't need to tell me who came up with that, because I know it. That's a Tominoism if I ever heard one. Yeah. Earthers. Wait, so moon people, what are the, is, there, is there like a, a slang form of that? Like, as mooners? <laughs> no, they, they just go by moon race. Okay, fair, fair. I was really hoping they would go by lunars, but... Alas, that would also be good. <laughs> yeah. So the conversation uh, in my notes, I feel weird calling him Dylan because that's the name of the Heim patriarch, Sochi's dad. Uh, but Sochi's dad, 
the Patriarch Heim and Gwyn have a very extended conversation that I want to jump into for a little bit because I think there's a lot of meat on these bones. I think everything about this conversation and like the location they're having this conversation in screams pre-World War One Europe. You know, we talked about the aesthetics and there are the aesthetics, obviously. Everyone's wearing period-appropriate attire. Gwyn's car looks like an early Rolls-Royce model, um, not unlike Gatsby's. But ideologically, Gwyn's optimistic view of industrialization and technology feels very 1913, if you know what I mean. Like, what he's putting down comes across as very futuristic. And when I say futuristic, I mean as pertaining to the cultural movement of futurism, um, which kind of kicked off in Italy in the early 1900s. Futurism is a, I guess, a broad term to refer to a very diverse artistic and cultural movement. Um, It was obsessed with speed. Like if you see a futurist sculpture, they tried to emulate speed as best as possible. Of course, that's a paradox because how do you represent a sculpture in movement? But still, abstract, think like cubism here. Abstractly, it was done in some really unique ways. Their movement glorified action and violence. Like if you were to talk to a futurist, and hopefully you never will, this is a lot of bullshit there, um, they sought to sweep away the the decadent vestiges of an older stagnant world. Like basically they wanted to blow up the old world and create a new modernized fast world. Like for futurists, the act of creation was very kinetic, very cleansing and progressive. And when I say progressive, I don't mean progressive like you think. I mean just moving forward because it always had to break through boundaries. And I kind of get whiffs of this from Gwyn. Like he hunts recreationally. So there's something about violence that appeals to him. He's also, at least in episode one, always framed in proximity to guns or cars. He definitely is into technology, and he's good with the rampant pace of industrialization. Industrialization, Like, for him, that's a net positive. He likes fast cars. He likes airplanes. Now, if you know anything about history, there's a very sinister side to futurism. Number one, the movement was incredibly misogynistic. Uh, and furthermore, all these men were thirsting for war for the sake of war. They were unbelievably excited for war because they would believe it would cleanse society. And they got their wish. Like many of them died in the trenches in World War I. And after the war, the movement didn't go away. And you could kind of guess what happened to these futurists in Italy. They became like these young futurists all became middle-aged fascists under Mussolini. This is like the middle of that Dan Olson video when he asked what happened to all the flat earthers. And they went to <laughs> exactly. QAnon. Like, ah, geez. Now, I don't know if Gwyn is going to go fully in that direction. Again, I don't know anything that's coming forward. I don't know, like, Yoko Kano's title track for piece number 57, like, Gwyn's something. Who knows? Whatever happens. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if he actually wants war from an ideological perspective. I suspect he does. But he definitely wants to be ready in case war breaks out. He doesn't want his country to be taken unawares. Maybe he only is using the prospect of war, like in a Machiavellian sense, for his own ends. But keep this in mind. Like, even though he was born into privilege and is an active driver of his own destiny, there's something very fatalistic about Gwyn. He's young. He's 19 years old. I did look that up. And he's, it seems like he's beholden to the decisions of you know, old men who seem to be dragging his country into war, which is why I think Gwyn might be framed a little bit more sympathetically down the line. He says, and I quote, the elderly run international relations and politics, so it's all I can do, end quote, which is such a Tominoism, and I think very appropriate to World War I as well, 
because usually it's the older generation which always fucks things up. And I feel like that could be the that could be a under that is an undercurrent through most of Tomino's works. I'll give I'll give you a slight sound, soundtrack spoiler. There is a track in the soundtrack called uh, Gwen Lineford's Lim- Limousine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, I believe that. That's not a stretch. Ooh, and I wasn't expecting a Gwyn-related pun in this episode, yeah. but PMC proved me wrong. I'm I so you know I, I definitely am on board with all of Steven's commentary here. I want to make some some Gundam comparisons though, because uh, Steven, who do you think I'm thinking of when I when I see Gwyn after this episode? Uh, let's see. I think well, it seems like he's being very what's the word? He's an opportunist. I feel, and whenever I think of opportunist, I think of Shar Aznable, circa 0079. Well, so here, what I'm seeing is someone who is maybe a, a, a junior officer, but has great aspirations. Sees oh, Garma sees a moment before him, and he wants to seize it. And he, he might he might even have his own philosophy. Uh, and he's also super cool. And no one is cooler than Trey's Kushinada. Oh, damn. <laughs> Trey's, Trey's rules, for the record. <laughs> I say that yeah. unironically. And as a Gundam Wing skeptic, but Trey's rules. Um, so, okay, I can, I can provide some, some context when it comes to Gwyn. Um, so, he is kind of modeled after two real-world uh, people. The n- number one is Howard Hughes, who was a 20th century American business uh, magnate, engineer, film producer, pilot, you know, super accomplished guy who was probably really sketchy as well. And the other one is a prime minister of Japan from 1972 to 1974 named Kakue Tanaka. And Tanaka had a lot of strong ties to the aerospace and construction industries and was involved in many political scandals. So, that kind of gives you like a like a base idea of what they were thinking of when they conceived Gwen Lineford as a character. So he is a very interesting character. I, I think he's one of the most interesting characters in in the entire show and in Gundam in general. And um, yeah, he's he's especially as a first time viewer, he's going to be pretty exciting to watch. Maybe Scorsese will make a biopic about him, cast DiCaprio again. I'd love to see Scorsese's Gundam. Um, there is a, a bit of a spoiler that I, that, I, that I kind of want to bring up about Gwyn. Please. I say a bit of a spoiler because it's not really ever brought up in a direct way in the show itself. So, so I'm going to ask you if, if, if it's okay to bring oh, it up. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Um, so Gwyn is actually intended to be gay. Like, he's homosexual. That's okay. um, part of his character conceptualization. Um, it's why even in the first episode, he starts calling Laurent Laura, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And the people, when the other characters are questioning him, why is he doing that? And it becomes like a big running theme within the show. So it is kind of good to understand the context early on, um, because it's not ever directly mentioned in the show itself. Um, in earlier versions of the show, of the scenario, earlier drafts, it was a lot more prominent. But you know, a lot of that kind of got toned down and, and changed as as the scenario uh, evolved. Um, and um, this was actually a thing that Tomino fought for in the show. Um, he wanted to, with Gwen's character conceptualization, he wanted to create a plot involving him, you know, being gay. Right? That's part of his character. 
and he got he received a lot of pushback from uh, staff members, um, you know, lower level staff who kind of uh, they either didn't want that or they wanted to implement it in a weird in kind of like a science fiction way where a character can you know modify their their gender or sex as they feel. And Tomino didn't didn't want that kind of um, unnatural uh, aspect of the show. He he believed that homosexuality and, and human sexuality was was a natural thing um, and uh, not something unnatural. And, you know, back in 1998, when this is all being uh, discussed, um, it's a lot more contentious than it is, you know, in 2023, for instance. So some staff members actually left the production of the show early on because of because of that strife. They didn't want to be involved in that kind of thing. So, um so yeah, that having that context with a character like Gwyn is, I think, uh, important and and beneficial to understanding him as a character as uh, as we continue to go along. That's interesting. I have heard anecdotes similar to that about the production of Turnay. Like um, some people mentioned, I think it was Megan D actually on our Discord mentioning Romy Park, the voice actress for Laurent. I believe she is Korean or part Korean, and so there were some staff members who took issue with that. And Tomino basically said, "Like here's the door." Um. So okay. So that's that's something I've heard as well. Um. But I don't. I'm not 100% sure if that's related to Turn A, because nothing I've read or been told about Romy Park's involvement with Turn A specifically, uh, I've never really heard that story. Um, it might be true. It might have been something that happened during Brain Powered, but I can definitely see it you know, being a thing. Yeah, I'm interested to uh, dive more into that when it, I guess, pops up, or if it pops up as Turn A continues. Actually, Fee, speaking of, I have a question for you. How much supplemental material is there of Turn A? Like, how big is the quote-unquote canon? You have the 49, 50 episodes of Turn A Gundam. Then you have the two compilation films, the novelizations. What else is there? Or is that it? So there's the, you know, the, the, the TV series. There's the two movies. Um, and that's what I would consider the quote-unquote canon, right? Um, and then there's two novelizations, one by Fukui, who would go on to, to also write Gundam Unicorn. And then there's uh, another novelization. And then there's two manga, two manga adaptations, one that's fairly uh, cookie-cutter standard fare for the most part, another one that deviates a little bit. And then there's uh, a third manga by Akiman, the character designer, which is a prequel um, story set on the moon. And those are those are the those are the main, I guess, uh, greater canon of of Terminal. And I've actually translated uh, some of it, most of it, I guess. I've, you know, the, we've we've translated the first manga, uh, Akiman's manga, and I want to work on the second manga, but I don't want to uh, destroy my own books to scan all the pages. And <laughs> <laughs> there's no. Um, there's no digital version of it either, so I'm kind of uh, kind of weighing my options. <laughs> that Akiman manga has me interested. PMC Akiman, if you didn't know, did the designs for Street Fighter Three. His art mm. rules. Yeah, that's those are some designs in that game. Yeah, and well, actually, he well, okay, he was involved in Street Fighter Three, but his main involvement with Street Fighter Three was Chun Li's sprite. Mm-hmm. Um, sprite animations, but yeah, he's the original character designer for Street Fighter Two. Okay. Okay. Um, Maybe I was mixing yeah. them up. 
Right, right, right. And uh, and he was involved with Capcom games for you know all of the nineties, basically. And uh, you know, funny story, kind of just going through it really quickly. But in the in the late nineties, Tomino joined a group. Yeah, they were called Marigold Management, and they were kind of like a like a, a company uh, that was funded by Nintendo actually to provide a safe haven for for creative minds to focus on game design and, and game related projects. So it was actually through them that Tomino actually considered you know getting into like game design a little bit. Uh, it's something that's not really discussed in a lot of detail because there's honestly there's not a lot of information out there. But it was through them. Um, that um, they also provided him like mental health assistance um, at the time, and, and at the time, Tomino was going through depression, um, and it was through them that he met Akiman. Um, you know, they set up a meeting with Capcom. To uh, Tomino went to Capcom headquarters, and uh, he actually he didn't go there to meet Akiman specifically. He went there to discuss uh, game design projects with Capcom. And he was introduced to Akiman at the time, and um, Akiman was a massive Tomino fanboy. <laughs> He's part of like the original, the first Gundam generation, basically, who you know fell in love with Gundam back then. And he sketched a he sketched a drawing of Chun Li to Tomino, and Tomino was basically you know, struck by it, and that's kind of how they they got started. I would love to be a fly in the wall at that meeting, Tomino trying to pitch <laughs> a game a game idea to Capcom, or just talking shop with the uh, you know creative staff at Capcom. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think I, I, this is just conjecture, but I think that's why um, the you know his his ventures into game design and you know meeting and working with Akiman, I think that's why the main character of King Gaming is is like a like a gamer, right? That's that's his whole thing. I really want that released on Blu-ray. We're we're a day out from a discotheque presentation and we've been talking this whole time. I'm like, please discotheque bring over Heidi. Please discotheque bring over King Gainer. Just I'm just calling That'd be great, yeah. See if any of it I mean, comes King, King Gainer is really interesting because it's an early 2000s production. It actually aired alongside Gundam Seed, but it was shot in, in HD, you know, 16 by 9 uh, um, ratio, and it's aged incredibly well visually as a result. As opposed to Gundam Seed. <laughs> right. See, Fees, you're too nice, but I'll, I'll, I'll call my shots as I see them. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. This episode drops Friday, a few days after the discotheque, so maybe we'll all be taking a victory lap. I mean, they did bring over Galgaigar, which is a Sunrise production, so who knows? Maybe, um, maybe. I'm curious what big announcements, because they announced the Gunbuster release day on Twitter after uh, Giant Robot FM's Twitter account willed it into existence. So we'll see what happens next. Laurent is ushered into the conference room. Sochi and Kiel's father, a.k.a. Dylan, having heard about Laurent's knack for machines, wants him to become the family's chauffeur. In his downtime, he'll study and attend university. The Heim Patriarch has big plans for Laurent. According to him, he'll be the driving force of the new age that Lord Reinford is creating. Gwyn remembers Laurent from the Coyote incident. The two share a moment. Even though he's a bit older, Master Heim announces that in addition to sending Laurent to university, he also wants him to be initiated in the coming-of-age ceremony. I suspect Haim's line about Gwyn and Laurent being linked by fate is going to be important, 
Um, we'll see where that goes from here. Fees, you shed some light onto um, a possible direction that can go. And I'm curious if it's going to be like an Amro and Shar thing where they too are linked by fate. And also they too are lovers. I wonder what Callahan is thinking though. Like Callahan's been the chauffeur the whole time. Is he getting college credit or is, I guess Callahan's too old. Yeah. He just seems like an old, old, uh, you know, a servant of the house, I assume. When I, when we're in these like aristocratic spaces and you have like these, this, this very British architecture, I keep thinking like all the help there are Irish. Like Laurent looks like PMC and I are Irish. So like one of our forefathers, like with his little cabbie hat and with his vest, I'm like, yes, you are uh, one of Stephen Hero's ancestors. So Gwyn at this point wants to see how Laurent is behind the wheel. They walk outside where they spot the militia's airplane squadron practicing formation. Gwyn compliments Mr. Clune as a first-rate airplane designer. Gwyn invites Gale to a soiree he's throwing at Bostonia Castle, which her daughter enthusiastically endorses. Or excuse me, which her father enthusiastically endorses. Laurent drives through town with Laurent and Jessica. Oh no, I, I must have been like half drunk when I wrote this. Uh, these notes. When Laurent drives through town with Laurent and Sochi as his passengers, Kiel follows in a separate car. She wonders why Gwyn referred to Laurent on, as Laura on two separate occasions. So I like the point you brought up, the production detail point you brought up earlier, Fees, but this, this, this binary, this dichotomy got me thinking, because like even in this first episode, there are a lot of contrast. Like You have the Earth and the Moon, Inglesa and Galia, Kiel and Diana, Laurent and Laura, male-female, elderly and young, old and new. Dichotomies like this are pretty common in Tomino's work. Dichotomies are pretty common in media of all types, but I feel especially in Tomino's work. I'm curious what it's going to build to, and I feel like it's also doubly appropriate considering Turn A straddles two eras. Like, it had premiered on April 15th, 1999, and it, I think, it, at least from episode one, I think it shares a lot of the turn of the millennium exuberance people were feeling at the time. I mean, it is called Turn A Gundam. I feel like it's very hopeful for that reason. It also made me think a bit of the first Pat Labor film, which coincidentally takes place in 1999. I feel like both are very, like, millenarian works, very concerned with what is to come in the future. I think both are pretty hopeful. Um, Turn A a little bit more so, but still, I think both are very optimistic works. Yeah, the 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 theme of like duality, you know, dual identities, is an incredibly relevant aspect to turning on them. As, as you'll come to see, and um, more so than, you know, any other Tomino work, and just in anime in general, like, it's, it's a huge aspect of the show, uh, and it, it all begins with the kind of dichotomy between, you know, Earthling and Moon Race, and and, and, and it, it takes off like crazy based off of that, so, yeah, you know, that your your read is 100% accurate, I'm, I'm happy you got it from the first episode. Thank you, thank you. I usually misfire, so I'm happy when I get something right. On the airfield, Gwyn addresses the colonel. Um, I, I think we'll see more of the colonel. I'm just referring to to him as the colonel because I didn't look up his name. He's wearing a, a cowboy hat. He looks very American. So he addresses the colonel and his men, announcing that the mass production of fighter planes has begun before boarding his private airship. Later, Laurent, dressed in his new work uniform, drives Sochi and Kiel into Nakis, a nearby city. Kale goes into a store to buy accessories for her dress for her, for her society debut. 
Sochi, annoyed at the attention and deference Laurent shows to Kiel, stays in the car. This is pure like Stephen Hero. I love the establishing shots we get here. Tomino's vision of Earth society is such a hodgepodge of different influences. It's just wonderful to take in and look at and examine. I also like how indulgent the camera is. As a viewer, we are not rushed to the action. Actually, we don't have a mech fight in this first episode, which I think is telling. We're allowed to linger in these spaces. And we can learn a lot from watching Laurent dutifully wait by the car as Sochi, who seems very irritated and maybe a little bored, reads in the passenger seat. Like, seeing characters just exist in their environment without intrusive narration or heavy-handed dialogue makes for really good character building. And to compare it to First Gundam, by this time in the episode of Episode 1 of First Gundam, Amaro's, like, ripping the face off of that Zaku. Here we have Laurent sitting in a uh, standing in front of a car waiting which i think is quite the contrast i'm also really concerned about sochi's character here like it, I, I can understand jealousy you know especially you know she's young sometimes you feel jealousy that happens she does make a comment and i wasn't sure if it was maybe a weird thing in the subtitles or or you know just expressing something else but she says they sell tacky stuff to the new rich which is like really uh, kind of like a, an interesting comment to make as far as, you know, identifying social classes and, and what's going on, you know, along with the rapid industrialization that Gwyn endorses, surely new fortunes are rapidly being made. You know, we've already mentioned Howard Hughes. We could go list off a bunch of other Rockefeller, Carnegie, uh, you know, whoever else, you know, making the making huge fortunes in this you know new industrial world, which I'm, I'm sure... You know, we may yet meet characters like that. Uh, and to have Sochi sort of identifying with like a very old guard mentality as a child is interesting. Yeah, that's a good point, PMC. It's very Gatsby because Gatsby is very nouveau riche, um, which is appropriate for a period like the 1920s where money is just free-flowing. I'm curious if we'll get more context as we go further in the show. Yeah, Sochi is kind of uh, meant to be the childhood friend character, despite not technically being the childhood friend. So that's why you see a lot of those kind of uh, typical aspects in her, you know, jealousy and and whatnot. She's a bit of a rebel as well, um, while Kihel is the more, you know, uh, uh, taking on the, 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 the societal expectations and social, climbing the social ladder kind of thing going on with her versus Sochi being the more rebellious childhood friend who gets jealous and whatnot. So, so yeah. While while waiting, Laurent spots Kevin, who's working at a or bakery. Keith, Keith, Keith. Damn it! I don't know where I was. When yeah, I, I don't was, know. Uh, wrapping up these I'm notes. A... <laughs> we had a good I run might, here. Fee's I might have to tell the missus about this. I don't know. She <laughs> might. She might need to know. I was taking some of these notes with my daughter, who's very into animation. She loves Studio Ghibli films, and she's been watching Turn A with me. But when I'm taking oh, notes, okay. I have to pause. My daughter's not yet two. And I have to pause, and sometimes I get sit on my notes for a while just either procrastinating or slowly typing or thinking, and she gets pissed off. She just wants me to go keep playing, despite the fact that she has no idea what's really going on for a variety of reasons, because I don't think she's fluent in Japanese or can read English subtitles. But nonetheless, I'm going to blame her for these misspellings. <laughs> so, so toddler here, if you're listening to this from the far future, this one was on you. So apparently Fran, and I got her name right, apparently Fran has also found employment in Noctis. I keep wanting to say Noctis for obvious reasons, but there's no T in there. Laurent drives the Heim sisters back home. During her sister's music lessons, Sochi searches high and low for Laurent around the estate. 
She spots him relaxing with Keith, a.k.a. Kevin, and Fran on some steps. Uh, I'll echo what I said earlier. Like, I love the small visual details. Like, Laurent, he's finally able to put up his feet and relax for a minute. He has his shirt unbuttoned. Uh, his sh- chauffeur cap is turned to the side. Like, this is the first time in a while that he's allowed to truly be himself because he's hanging out with his, like, his homeboys here. He doesn't have to put up a front. And again, I like how the visuals reflect this. It's, it's nice. Uh, it's also the fact that they constantly change costumes and clothing. It's just not like Hero Yui wearing the same clothes for 49 episodes. It's good to see. It's, it's, a, it's a feast for the eyes. Yeah, you know, some of the things that you're pointing out uh, does lend itself to Tomino's storyboarding style. He's very uh, particular about character movement, how characters move in and out of frames and, and things of that nature, versus uh, like what dialogue is necessarily attached to like each each scene. And that's why that's why like like you were mentioning, you can um, um, you can kind of uh, understand the character just by what they're doing you know it's, it's show not tell storytelling is, is how i like to describe it and Tomin is definitely like a like a master of that yeah i'm really excited for i just want to exist in this world for a while and i hear the first stretch of episodes is kind of like that just a relaxed pace and i i want more of it so i'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully 10 to 12 episodes of chilling i wanted to make a naming note uh which is uh, Dylan D Y L A N, of course, is a sur- was a you know a surname of Welsh origin. Uh, I think most people think of Bob Dylan when they think of of that name, and then as a re- uh, in most anecdotal instances I've been able to look up, a lot of people then started giving their kids first names. Dylan, I, I knew one such person when I was young, uh, and the parents were like, "Yeah, we're hippies. We named him Dylan. What do you think?" and <laughs> And so here, I, I do think it's funny to see that used as a as a first name. Uh, as an additional note, however, the band Heim, formed by the Heim sisters, did not become a thing until 2007. So I don't think that's involved here. Um, yeah, these these names seem a little bit more restrained. Where's my <laughs> slender jeans? There's no Makuve here, sadly. <laughs> Well, at least not yet. Maybe, maybe there are Moonrace villains, and they'll have weird names. I don't know. Oh, there, there, there's some names. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> you'll, 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 you'll get your Tomino names. Excellent. Excellent. So we're almost at the end of the episode here. Sochi tries to decipher this meeting between hometown friends as the trio cryptically debrief each other about their mission. They discuss war rumors, the absence of the moon in newspaper articles, and whether the flat has remained hidden. Later that night. Trailed by Callahan and Sochi, Laurent drives to where the flat is buried, digs out the head, and announces to the full moon that, quote, the earth is a great place, exclamation mark, end quote, bringing us to the end of our episode. And it's really funny to me because I get why Laurent is doing that, but also coming from the perspective of someone watching this in the, uh, you know, I guess what, two, two decades or so after production, and certainly a century after where this sort of like feels like it's set, obviously there could be revelations about the timeline or whatnot, but it definitely feels like, Oh, Loran, don't you know what industrialization is going to do to the earth? <laughs> you know, don't you know, war is coming and pollution is coming and, you know, and, and, you know, maybe there's a history there too. Uh, I, I have some sense there. Steven has already hinted that maybe there was some sort of apocalyptic event or something, but uh, but it definitely it definitely feels 
ironic. Like it, I, I do believe Lorraine is sincere, but for the production overall, it feels ominous. That's a really good point. Like maybe what you maybe stay on the moon. I'm very curious yeah. what the, how the moon looks like. like are you sure, be- dog? Do you do you know? Did you hear the conversation when you walked into that room? Do you know what war is? Fees, you could spoil this. Do we see the moon? Like, will we be on the moon at one point? Yes, yes, absolutely. I hope the moon is just has weird ass designs. Um, Gundam has a history of decent moon designs. Like the city of Von Braun, at least in Gundam, the origin looks super cool. Um, not every Gundam show has cool moons. I'm hoping this one does. I would say it's pr- it's pretty cool. Yeah, I guess Fees, you're be the expert. You're, you're the moon person here. Yeah, I, I I think it does a pretty. Um, it, I think well, okay. Well, I'm not going to say too much. I don't want to spoil anything. Do you have a favorite? So you're really into the moon and lunar representations. Do you have a favorite moon? I guess a representation of the moon in media. I mean, it would be Turn A Gundam um, from a from a symbolic uh, perspective. Do you have a number two? I don't have a number two necessarily. Well, let's see. I, I do like how Gundam X uses the moon as well. Um, I like what Sailor Moon does on a kind of like aesthetic level. I like what Space I like what Space Brothers does. If you guys have watched that or read that manga, I think that the way mm-hmm. they use the moon is is incredible. And there's a there's a actually a really good arc in that show. I don't know if you I don't know if either of you have seen it, but there's an arc in the show that takes place on the moon that's uh, incredible at kind of. Um, um, showcasing the moon as, as both like a beautiful thing and as like an incredibly scary thing, you know, the, because it's in space. I like what Planetis does. Probably pronounced that incorrectly, but I think the way it uses the moon, it has like colonized world on the moon, and it discusses a lot of like um, concepts such as like long term exposure to low gravity environments and things of that nature. So I think the I think the, what that show does is pretty interesting too. I like what Final Fantasy IV does. If you played that game, oh yeah, um, it's actually it's it's pretty it's pretty good. I, I I like the whole concept of, of Lunarians and how the main character is kind of like a bridge between the the Earth and the Moon, and you know you, you go to the Moon eventually in that game too. Um, the Lunar Whale rules. I love that space. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The Lunar Whale is awesome. So yeah, those are some of the ones I can think of offhand. No, those are good like references. Lunar, lunar representation in, in media. Um, and just in general, you know, I, I do really like the, the tale of the bamboo cutter. Mm. Um, the Studio Ghibli Princess Kaguya adaptation is really good. And I actually own like a lot of different takes on the story, just books in general. And it's always fun to read like different variations of the same story. Um, there's also a a uh, Leiji Matsumoto story called Queen Millennia that's a uh, that calls itself a new tale of the bamboo cutter it's set in a you know highly futuristic far future uh, era but it kind of takes a lot of cues from Princess Kaguya in general as well which is uh, which is pretty interesting so um, yeah no, that's what comes to mind at least no, that's a comprehensive list. If I were also put on the spot like you, I don't know what I would produce. I like moons, but I like 
moons that aren't our moon often. Like I would think of like mm. a lot of the cool moons in Bebop, like the moons around our solar system. I referenced mm-hmm. Lunar earlier, the fictional moon that orbits that planet from that. Oh man, I don't know if the planet has a name. PMC? Oh no, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'll DM Victor Ireland later, get the deets. But yeah, anyway, we're at the end of the episode, and I am I am so excited to continue this. I'm so excited, even though we're going to be moving at this at a snail's pace. Potentially two and a half years from now, if G-Witch goes four core, we could only be halfway through the show, but I am still champing on the bit for more and looking forward to two weeks from now when we're going to be watching and talking about episode two. I do have a, a funny story to share about the, the last scene of the first yeah, episode. Totally. Um apparently and and they talk about this in the in the audio commentaries, but apparently Tomino wasn't satisfied with the way that Romeo Park was delivering the uh the last line, you know, the earth is a great place. So he kept uh sh- he kept basically shouting at her through the 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 audio proof uh, glass that hey you're not doing it right so she kept screaming back at him and they were doing like a shouting match at each other back and forth back and forth and you know she was like raising her hands up in exasperation just keeps repeating the same line over and over and then the the sound engineer at some point had had like recorded like one of the, one of the, one of her takes and then they just kind of rolled with that. <laughs> <laughs> I love seeing, as a bald man, I love seeing Tomino from this era because he's finally embraced his baldness and started shaving his head, and he looks great. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So That's my advice he's to anyone who's going bald. Just embrace it. Like, Tomino wasn't embracing it for a while and doing the comb-over. Um, and sometimes ha- he's doing the comb-over with the beard. No, that's a no on both both the ends of the spectrum. Um, but just embrace it like Tomino. Be your best self. Yeah, I think the the bald the bald look with the with the cap that he he's, he rocks these days, I think I think it's great. Big ups from Steven Hero. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. I'm looking forward to continuing this, and hopefully, you enjoyed our conversation. Fees, you were a wellspring of knowledge about the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm happy to be here, um, and I'm excited to uh, to kind of follow uh, your guys' journey and see uh, you know how you feel about the show moving forward. And let listeners let us know, let Fees know if you, if you enjoyed this episode. Shout us out on Twitter, PMC. Actually, before I throw it to PMC, Fees, promote yourself, promote Moon's Cocoon, promote the excellent work that you do. You are one of my favorite follows on Twitter. You're optimistic, full of energy, and your tweets are very knowledgeable and accurate, which I can't say about all of my tweets. Thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah, you got you guys can follow me at uh, on Twitter at Feezy underscore Fees. Um, you can uh, check out my website uh sukinomayu.com um which um which is actually the name of the second ending theme of the show um and and yeah you know I, i'm always happy to chat about turn a gundam gundam in general anime in general um i respond to most of the dms i get on twitter too if you want to bug me in dms um and yeah you know i, I you mentioned you know keeping a positive attitude about gundam i i've worked hard to kind of um instill that mentality in me, not just in Gundam, but in life in general, because I don't want to get swallowed up by negativity, um, especially in this day and age of social media, where it's so easy to do that. Um, you know, especially a franchise like Gundam, which I, you know, I, I love Gundam. I don't want to sit there and seethe and, and think about how the, the, the entries I don't like about Gundam too much. I would rather just move on and, and, and you know, look at things from a positive outlook. That's why you've only seen G-Savior once. 
God. Chief Saber has its its place in in the fandom. I haven't watched it yet, even though we're podcast. Well, we're, we're going to delay our schedule a bit, but I will be podcasting and talking about it before the end of February. I think I'm going to watch it in a few days. PMC, kick us off. Hit those plugs, my friend. Yeah, what so a- if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, there's a few ways to do that. Of course, this episode is going to be releasing in the main feed. So if you're able to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice, that is very much appreciated. We're independent. We're not part of any network, anything like that. So we pretty much rely on word of mouth and our incessant posting on Twitter to get the news out about what we're up to. Uh, so definitely, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter and you know, write and review if you want to support us. In terms of supporting us directly, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. Future episodes of Moonrace Wireless are going to uh, you know appear at very least initially on that Patreon exclusive feed. So if you want to you enjoy that, go ahead and subscribe for the, the bonus podcasts. We do have a patron-exclusive Discord. We also have another uh, another set of podcasts that we do just for patrons, which is the Simulator series, where we give Mecha video games the same treatment that we give to Mecha anime. So that includes a rundown of production history, as well as our thoughts on notes on the games themselves. In the past, we've done Armored Core, and we've put those episodes in the main feed. So you, if you want to, for free, you can listen to like six hours of us talking about the PS1 Armored Core games. A lot of people have enjoyed those. So check that out. And if you want to support that work, you can do so over at patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. We are currently working on the second of a two-parter for Front Mission, the first Front Mission, covering kind of the original game's production history, as well as going into the Front Mission first remake, which just came out uh, this past November and beyond that, we'll be moving on to Frame Grind. Uh, so we, we, having done Armored Core, we'll move on to FromSoft's next mecha game, which was the JP exclusive Frame Grind for Dreamcast. So if you want to support that work again, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. In terms of future stuff on the main feed, on this feed that you're, you're listening to right now probably, we will be moving on to G-Savior coverage soon. Some really exciting announcements there in terms of what we plan to do with the coverage, covering the production history, covering the game, talking about the movie itself. We have some really cool guests lined up. Uh, I think we've already... Did we announce our guest for the history episode? Yes. So we'll have, we'll have Mark Simmons on to talk about... Did I, get, I did that right, right? Yes. Okay, good. To talk... I, I'm sorry. There, the main character of G-Savior is also named Mark, so I was briefly worried that I had said the main character of G-Savior... We'll be anyway. The main character G Savior will also be on. No, uh, but we'll have Mark Simmons on to talk about G Savior as well as other guests for the run of G Savior. Expect the most comprehensive podcast about G Savior that you will ever listen to. Most likely, I have watched the movie and I think it's perfectly watchable. I have no problems with it. It is a good science fiction made for TV film. That is what I'm going to say. So you should w- watch G Savior in glorious 480p. And then check out our podcasting of it. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the art that we use. And I want to give credit to Fretzel, hashtag band Fretzel, for the music that we use. So in the face of ecological disaster, any moon people out there, maybe don't come to Earth. Maybe stay on the moon. That's my two cents. <laughs>